How is everybody doing today? If for no other reason that it's the Lions Club barbecue today, y'all should be happy. Can we get a what, what? <laughs> See, now someone was listening. Someone's like, what? Well, hey, it is so great to have you all here this morning. Um, I want to take a moment and pray over the Lions Club. Um, here's part of what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about flourishing and Part of our job as a community is to help our community flourish to thrive. And I'm so grateful for the Lions Club. Would you all stand with me for a moment? We're just going to pray a blessing over the Lions Club barbecue. If you feel comfortable, if you want to extend a hand, uh, it's just a way of asking the Lord to bless. And so let's just pray a blessing over the Lions Club this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today, for the beautiful, the beautiful morning that it is, God. And as we, uh, as there's amazing chicken the smell of chicken wafting through the air, God. Uh, we actually pray a blessing upon the Lions Club. Lord, that you would bless the work that they do in the city for the community. Bless this barbecue and bless this food. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Y'all may be seated. Well, hey, it's so good to see y'all this morning. Uh, it is such an incredibly beautiful day. Uh, thank you so much for choosing to be with us this Sunday morning, I know you could be any other, any number of other places and you've chosen to be here. If you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. And uh, I'll tell you, if you're a visitor with us, we hope that you feel welcomed. And if you've been wandering or searching for a spiritual home, we hope you'll consider joining what God is doing here at Zion. If you're just in town visiting, man, I'm so glad that you've chosen to visit with us. Uh, whether you've loved Jesus for years, are new to faith, or are simply testing this Jesus and church stuff out, I want you to hear this. Zion is a place where you can belong, believe, and become. Uh, we're currently in a series called This Is How I Fight. It's a series dedicated to helping us better understand the world we live in and the battle raging in the unseen and visible world around us that the Bible calls the heavenly realm. Now, the first part of this series, we explored the reality of spiritual warfare and that there is a war going on. And the war is not necessarily what you can see. It's actually happening in an unseen place. And that the real enemy is not people. It's not the government. It's not other structures. The real enemy is the devil. And the devil and his demons are liars. They're thieves. And they do everything they can to delay, distract discourage and destroy the work of God's mission and purpose for his people called the church in the world. Now, it's one thing to talk about the reality of an invisible world. It's another thing to talk about how do we experience victory in that. How many of you, by show of hands, want victory in your life? Raise your hand. I hope you all have it, because if you don't want victory, it means you're missing out. And the only way that we can be aware of victory, the only way that we can actually experience victory in our lives is we must expose the enemy's tactics, his schemes, his strategies. Because here's what we've discovered, is that Satan wants to do everything he can, especially to the church, to cause destruction. Now, we know that the Bible has told us the war is already over. Satan knows he's been defeated. But until Jesus returns, Satan is still wanting to wreak havoc. He wants to cause as much destruction as possible. And us as the church, our job, our calling as a church is to help bring the gospel 
the kingdom of God into a world that is filled with heartache and despair and hopelessness. Now, I know, unfortunately, there are way too many Christians who walk around life deflated and defeated. Not because God has left them to fend for themselves without authority and power, but because they do not know who they are in Jesus. They do not know the spiritual blessings, the spiritual resources made available to us through Christ. They don't have the Holy Spirit living actively in their life. And here's what I want you to hear. If you're a Christian, the Bible tells us that you have the Holy Spirit. That you have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that empowered Jesus to perform miracles. You have that spirit within you. And that spirit allows us to experience victory. But not only do we have that, we also have God's word spoken to us and God's word revealed to us in the person of Christ. Thus, the second part of the series has not just been about this invisible war, but it's about revealing the devil's strategies and lies, but also teaching us how we can stand firm and resist. Because when we resist the devil, when we dig into God's promises, his faithfulness and power, the authors of the Bible give us this problem. And I want you to hear this right now. If you resist, if you stand firm in God's word and the power of the spirit, the Bible promises this, the devil will flee. He'll run. Now, here are a few of the schemes, the strategies that we've been talking about that the enemy utilizes. There are weapons in his arsenal that he uses to attack and discourage God's people. Now, I also want to say this, is that if for any reason, if you've missed any part of this series, it's available on the Zion app. It's also available online. I would encourage you, listen to them. I've had several people, and I want to thank you for the encouragement I've gotten. I think I said this at the beginning of the series. When we started this, I was a little nervous about doing a series on spiritual warfare in the park. And part of it was is that sometimes when we think about spiritual warfare, we think about demons and exorcisms and all the supernatural stuff or the stuff we see on TV. And, and I believe those things are real. But the truth is, for most of us, most of you here today... Satan's going to be a lot more subtle than a demonic possession or an exorcism. He's going to attack in tangible ways. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that Satan's smart? And that what he's going to do is instead of being so obvious, he's going to be subtle. And in that subtlety, that's where we discover that Satan attacks most. And so uh, three weeks ago, Jennifer Colby, our adult ministries director, talked about the power of words and how Satan uses words spoken over us to become the words spoken out of us. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about fear and that Satan knows that all of us have fears. Every human being has some fears and that our enemy seeks to use our fears to expose and attack the weak spots in our life. And because Satan rarely does the dirty work himself, usually the words he's going to use are the words that other people speak over you. He's going to use the fears that other people use against you. It's called the fear of man. What others think about us to manipulate, control, and distract you from God's best for your life. And then last week, we talked about the fear of scarcity and that how a scarcity mindset is this. It's fear of not having, getting, or being enough. Now, I want to be a little vulnerable with you this morning. 
one of the ways that the enemy gets me the most when it comes to scarcity is that I'm not enough. How many of you are willing to admit that sometimes you just don't feel like you're enough? Any, am I the only one? That's one of those lies that the enemy, and he went after me hard this week. He really did. He came after in a way where essentially it was just, Jason, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not a good enough leader. You're not strong enough. And here's what I've discovered. And Paul talks about the secret of enough. And that the way we fight scarcity is not through abundance, but contentment. This is Paul's words in Philippians. And what the Lord reminded me of this week, and I want you to hear this. I don't have to be enough because Jesus is enough. Amen. And when I realize that Jesus is enough, that in my weakness, his strength is made known, that in those moments of dependence, that's ultimately when I experience the most victory. It's when I can be content that I don't have to be the answer to everything. In fact, the more I discover that Jesus is enough, the more I realize I am enough in Christ. Because it's about our sufficiency found in Christ. Now, I believe that there are some of you here this morning that need to hear that. Some of you here this morning who that lie of not getting enough, not getting going enough, not being enough, all the enoughs, that what you need to hear right now is the same thing I heard, is that Jesus's grace is enough. And when we live in that enoughness, we begin to realize is that the lie of enough, the lie of seeking enough, is when do you have enough money? When will you have enough time? When will you have enough money and savings? When will you be successful enough? When will your business be big enough, broad enough? When will you have enough trophies and awards? When will you have enough energy? Can I get, how many of y'all are just struggling to have enough energy, even this morning? I mean, come on, some of us are like, yeah, right? It's when will we have enough? When will you be enough? And Paul, the Apostle Paul, reveals to us that this is Satan's, one of his greatest deceptions, is that he wants you stuck in scarcity. He's living for that, and it's a, it's a, a, a plague that has been with humanity since the fall, and we resist that fear again in Jesus. Now, I also want to say one other truth, and sadly, I don't think we're honest about this enough in the church. And once you've been a Christian for more than a hot second, you'll discover this. The only abundant life we really find is in Jesus, but that doesn't mean that life gets easier. It doesn't mean that Christians don't go broke. It doesn't mean Christians don't get sick. It doesn't mean Christians don't wrestle with depression or heartache or anxiety. What it does mean is this, is that when we're confronted with those things, we can find victory in Jesus. And our victory is not always right here, right now. Sometimes it's knowing it's coming in the future. That is what happens when Jesus is our enough. Amen? Amen. This morning, we're going to look at one other, another one of the devil's strategies and weapons. And it's, again, if there's anything that you've learned about the enemy over the last several weeks, I hope what you've learned is that Satan is crafty. He's conniving. He's a liar. He likes to twist and pervert God's truth just enough so it seems like the truth, but in reality, it's a lie that's leading you to destruction. So if you have your Bible or the Zion app, or if you want to turn to Zion's Facebook page, if you would stand with us, we're going to turn to Philippians 
chapter 2 for our verse today. Philippians chapter 2, if you want to stand with me as we read God's word, I'm going to give you all a moment to turn to it if you want to find it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you found it, if you'll do me a favor, if you want to read this out loud with me, if you've got it online or in your Bible, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. Amen? Uh, so over the last, y'all may be seated. Over the, last, uh, over the last year, we've been doing a bunch of house renovations. I've talked about this. And uh, so therefore, Menards has kind of become like a second home to me. I go to Menards pretty regularly. And there's a woman there, and I don't remember her name. I think it's Michelle. And every time I see her, she has the biggest smile on her face. And she's just got this really sweet voice, and, and she calls me honey. Oh, honey, it's so good to see you. And, and so we ran into her this last week. And she was at the front and we were returning a few things and I see her and I said, hey, I just wanted to tell you that every time I come in here, you see me, you are just so friendly and kind and I just, you make my day. How many of you have been someplace where an employee makes your day because they're just sweet as honey, right? And she looks at me and she goes, oh honey, I love you. Can I give you a hug? And she comes around the counter and she gives me this big hug and, and she, it's like I've known her my entire life. And she hugs me and she goes, I just think you're the sweetest thing in the world. And then I said, thank you so much. It was such a, so just keep on doing what you're doing. Now, I want you to hear this. Over the last several years, our world, our country has gone through a lot. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that over the last probably three, four years, we've had one of the most unique and difficult times in modern history? From COVID to life being shut down, then being opened back up again, then shut down again, and then opened up again to the war in Ukraine, to now the economic crisis now facing our country. And I don't know about you, but it feels like every time we're about ready to turn a corner, every time we can breathe, something else happens. It's another crisis, another shift. It's almost like we can't make headway. And I think the harder part about this, as much as there our country our world feels stuck. For many of us here today, many of us feel like we can't make headway. Some of you here today feel like you're stuck personally, relationally, spiritually, emotionally, whether it be in your marriage, with your family, your finances. It just feels like we're stuck. I was recently listening to a leadership podcast from Carrie Newhoff. And if you've never heard it, it's a phenomenal podcast. 
And he had on there a guy named Adam Grant. Adam Grant is a sociologist and a psychologist. He's written some wonderful books. I'm reading one of his books right now called Think Again. And he was, they were talking about what is going on in our world right now. What is happening in our world? How do we describe this feeling? If we had a word for it, what would it be? And Adam Grant said the word that psychologists, social psychologists are coming is a word that we actually don't use very often. It's the word languish. And Kate Hoppel, our children's director, when we were doing Sermon Read-Through, she goes, it's like long anguishing. It's languishing. And this morning, we're going to talk about two words. We're going to, and I want to give a brief definition for you on them. We have the word languish, and then we have its counterpart, which is flourishing. Now, here's how Adam Grant described languishing on that podcast. Now, as I read this, I want you to do a personal inventory. I want you just for a second to say, have I felt this at any point over the last several years? Maybe you're feeling it right now. This is how Adam Grant defined languish. It's a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. I like to describe it as trying to suck peanut butter up through a straw where you're putting all this energy in and it's just, you feel like you're getting something, but nothing's happening. How many of you by show of hands have felt like that over the last couple of years? Am I, some of you are honest about it. I know I have, but the Bible tells us that languishing is not really what we're called to. What God wants us to experience is flourishing. Flourishing means to thrive to feel success, to feel like we're moving forward in the world. Now, I want to be honest, this podcast was interviewed. It was done at the tail end of COVID. And as they were walking through it, I mean, I think especially as a nation, this sense of stagnation of being stuck was so prevalent. But I think a case could be made because of the barrage of crises facing our country and our world, this sense of stagnation and emptiness still resounds for so many of us, even though it seems like COVID is in our rearview mirror. Now, you would think that languishing leads to giving up, burying your head in the sand, but here's the scary part. How many of you remember when we first hit lockdown with COVID a year and a half, two years ago? And at first, everybody's like, it's going to be a week. And then it was two weeks. And I started talking to people because you could no longer go out. You couldn't do sporting events. And I had numerous people say, Jason, I didn't realize this. I'm a really busy person. And now all of a sudden, I can't be busy anymore. And I just started discovering how much I'm enjoying not being busy. I'm enjoying my time with my family. How many of you guys remember that? You know what I'm talking about? That sense of, oh, I can breathe a little bit. And I talked to many people who were like, Jason, I think this might be the best thing that's ever happened. I've been chasing the wrong things. I think, I think I'm, this catching my breath has made me realize that there's more. So if I learned anything through things like COVID, it's that activities aren't enough. Sometimes you need purposeful relationship. You need some time to slow down. Here's what's happened. COVID ended or sort of ended. And now it feels like we're busier than we ever were before. 
that I look around and I talk to families that before the lockdown a year and a half ago, they were busy and now they've just compounded the interest of busyness and they're chasing going one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing and they just keep on going. And here's the question, how and why did this happen? How did we forget, how did we forget that sense of sometimes it's okay to take a beat and not just do something but be present? When did this happen? Why did this happen? And I'll tell you, I think I have the answer and I think it's found in scripture. See, the lie that the devil brought us in the midst of languishing, when we feel stuck, we know that it's not supposed to be that way. We know that we're actually, God created humans to thrive and flourish in the world. And we have this divine longing inside for us for more. And when we languish, we go, that's not right. So we try to fight languishing through busyness. That maybe if I do more, if I do enough, I'll get that sense of purpose back. And sadly, so many of us had a glimpse of contentment But because the world has felt out of control for so many of us, the one thing we can control is our schedules. And so we pack them to the brim. We just make them filled with more and more and more. And I think it's all from this longing to thrive. Now, here's the thing about human beings. All humans struggle with this. It's a fatal flaw. And the enemy knows exactly how to play on it. The flaw that we all have is all of us like control. When we feel like we've lost control, when we have no purpose, when we feel like we're languishing, we believe that if I take control, if I can get a handle of it, then I'll succeed, then I'll thrive, then I'll flourish. And so here's what I think happened. I believe that the languishing that we felt as a people has now led to us being busier than ever in an attempt to make progress. Now, I want to set the stage for us this morning for our Bible story found in the Old Testament. It's found in Genesis chapter 11. But before we get there, I want to kind of paint a picture so you understand how God intended us to function. In the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible in the Old Testament, that's to the left. It's written by a book by a guy named Moses. Genesis starts off with God creating the heavens and the earth. Now, somewhere on the earth was a garden. The whole earth was not a garden. Just part of it was a garden. And God created two creatures different, distinct from all other animals in the world. Humans. Humans alone were made in the image of God, man and woman, And unlike all the other creatures, they have a purpose in the world that is more than just to exist. I want you to think about this. I have two cats. My cat is never going, I wonder what it'd be like to be a dog. That never happens. A cat just wants to be a cat. A dog just wants to be a dog. A plant doesn't strive to be a plant. It's just a plant. All animals have a sense of contentment because they just simply do what animals do. But human beings are different. When God created us in his image, he created us not just with intellect, but with reason and creativity. He created us with a purpose, a job, a mission in mind. 
And our job is to mirror the character. That's what it means to be made in God's image. It's to mirror God's character and creativity, his goodness in the world. And so Adam and Eve were placed in the middle of this garden. Now, this is important. Their mission, humanity's mission was to manage, to steward God's creation, this garden, but not just to keep it there, but to spread out the beauty of the garden. That's what they were called to do. Adam and Eve were called to take all of the resources of the garden and there was no toil. It was just, you put a seed on the ground and it would sprout. And their job was to expand the garden into the world. Now, I've often wondered, why did God place them in a garden? Why not just a city? Why did he start with the raw bones? Here we are, we're sitting in the park. I want everybody to take a moment, breathe in this moment right now. What's behind us just about half a block that way? A beautiful lake. We have trees and nature around us. And when you see that, I think one of the reasons why the park is so successful isn't because of Zion. It's because we have a longing to be back into creation. Would you agree with that? Like there's something with inside of us that goes, oh, it's just so wonderful to be outside amongst nature. I wonder... If the reason why God planted them in a garden is that gardens are a perfect picture of flourishing when they're well-maintained, when they're taken care of, the, the sights, the smells, the colors, the beauty, there's something remarkable. And I think God placed Adam and Eve in the garden as a picture of what human flourishing looks like. What does it look like when humans are thriving? When the world is thriving, it's a beautiful place to be. And then unfortunately, sin entered the garden and we got weeds in the garden. Now, a few weeks ago, I talked about the struggle I'm having with some weeds. I, I, we tore down this whole structure, this field, cut out all the weeds. And I, I guess you're all going to be surprised by this. Can you guess what's back in that area of land? Weeds. Because here's what I've discovered, and I think we all see this. Weeds know how to thrive and flourish way better than anything else. In fact, weeds don't even have to try to flourish. They just do. But tending to plants, trying to make things better, that's tough. The same is true for us. As being made in God's image, when we don't understand our purpose... When weeds get into our emotional garden, our thought life, when weeds get into our character, they somehow can strangle out the beauty and the purpose that God has given us. Now, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 reveals two very profound purposes. See, what made the garden special wasn't Adam and Eve and it wasn't the garden. It was the God who dwelt in the garden. The Bible tells us that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And and here's what we've discovered is that part of flourishing means it is to know God and make God known and enjoy him forever. That that is one of the things that we need is I believe that apart from Jesus, we'll never really understand true flourishing. But the second part of flourishing, of thriving as human beings, is that every single person here today, Every single one of us were created to manage and multiply and grow 
to cultivate God's creation, that we have a purpose to bring flourishing into the world. Thus, I believe God placed Adam and Eve in the garden where God dwelled because their mission, just like ours, is to expand the beauty of the garden of God's creation into the world to bring his kingdom. It's to help the world flourish and thrive to come alive. When sin entered in, weeds entered in. So I decided to do some research. I looked at what, what, what can I learn about weeds? And so I went to this really cool, uh, I found this great blog. It's called the Australian Herbicide Resistance Initiative. That's an awesome name. I'm just saying like, first of all, it's got resistance in it, right? Like, whoa, resist. And Dr. Catherine O'Sullivan wrote this. She did a whole paper on weeds. Listen to what she says about weeds. Weeds are selfish. They're self-centered, narcissistic, manipulative pieces of work that will do whatever it takes to make themselves look good and make the other plants around them look bad. If they had their own Facebook profiles, they'd be full of selfies of the weeds around them looking a million dollars and the crops around them looking dreadful. Now, she then goes on to describe the reality of how weeds work. Weeds actually manipulate the soil around them to strangle out all the nutrients. They strangle out life so that nothing else around them can thrive except for more weeds. They literally hog all of the attention, all of the nutrients for themselves. Here's what I want you to hear. The devil does not want you to thrive or to flourish. He does not want the world to flourish and thrive. He wants to see weeds flourish. He wants to see languishing. Now, he twists the spirit-filled, Christ-centered contentment for apathy or settling, hoping to distract you from your purpose or your calling to help the world around you flourish and thrive. But again, the devil's sneaky, so how does he do it? I think he does it through busyness. Why is it so much busier now than before? Because in our attempt to find purpose in meeting we lost sight or maybe never actually understood how God defines human flourishing. How does God describe thriving in the world? See, we have a human definition, and here's where our story comes from today. We've now had the Garden of Eden. We have Noah and the whole flood thing, and that's a whole different conversation. I get that. Now in Genesis chapter 11, we come to this children's story that I bet you you've all heard, but if you're anything like me, I never really understood the purpose of it. The Tower of Babel. How many of you guys remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Raise your hand. Okay, if you went to Sunday school, maybe you had the flannel graph, right? And they put it up there. Okay, so here's what happens. It says that humanity, now remember, humanity's job was to expand the garden to help the world flourish. And all the leaders of humanity, they go out into the world. Everybody speaks one language. There's not diversity. It is just one people. Everything's going out. And it says they come to a land and they settle. 
Now, this is the Jason revised standard version, okay? So humans, one primary family, they all speak one language. They start off really good. They're going out. They're bringing culture. They're spreading east, doing all the things that God has called them to do. But eventually, they find a really not nice plot of land, a plain. And as the people moved eastward, they find a Shinar, and they decide to settle there. Now, here's the problem with settling. It's such a small sentence, but how many of you, don't raise your hand because I don't, how many of you have ever settled for something less than good? I think we all have, right? Every single one of us here has settled for something that instead of getting more that was available to us, we simply just said, you know what, this is enough. So they settle in the land. Now here's what it says. The people turned to each other and said, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. They then said to themselves, let's build the city. They were the first Jefferson starship, man. They built this city on rock and roll. And they then said, let's build a city. Let's build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Now, don't lose this. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So you might be thinking, what's going on right now? What does the Tower of Babel have to do with languishing? Here's what happened. This is far removed from the Garden of Eden. Humanity was like, you know what? We're doing pretty well. We found this nice plot of land. Let's just stop here. This is good enough. But God's command was for humanity to go out and flourish, to bring flourishing to the whole world. See, there was nothing wrong with building a city. The problem was that they settled. And I believe the reason why they settled is they lost sight of their purpose. I think humanity was languishing. And when they lost sight of their purpose, they decided, well, let's make our own purpose. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower that reaches the, the heavens where the gods dwell. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be great. So they got busy. Some of you here today, instead of flourishing the way God wants you to, are simply settling for busyness. You're settling for a bigger bank account. You're settling for more name, for more fame, for more popularity, for the bigger house. You're settling for more activities. I got to take my kid to this baseball tournament and this basketball tournament because I need my child to feel significant. And so let's, you know what, Jason, I'm not settling. Yes, you are. It's just a different kind of settling. You're finding purpose in the wrong place. In fact, what it's become is a weed and it's turned inward to now the only person you're thinking about is your own flourishing, not the world's. And so here's what happens in the, gar in, the, in the the valley of Shi'ar. God comes down. Now, this is interesting because the last time God, we see God walking among his people is in the garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned. And God turns and says, Adam and Eve, where are you? And they've sinned and they're naked and they realize they're naked. So they're hiding. And, and that's the last time we see God walking in the, around with his people. God now comes down and he sees what's going on. And he sees that humanity has lost vision. 
that their vision is only become for themselves, for their own fame, for their own glory. And so what does God do? God decides to force them to go out. God confuses their language. Now they can't understand each other. He then makes it so in the middle of that, the Tower of Babel doesn't happen. And now this seems really odd and maybe even a little insecure. Why is God so afraid of them reaching the heavens? It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that they're not actually fulfilling their purpose. Their purpose is to see the world flourish, not just themselves. Languishing leads to selfishness. Languishing leads to me focusing on my own flourishing, not creation flourishing. Now, what if, what if we take last week's message where we talked about how we fight scarcity with contentment? See, I, I want to pose something to you. What if the reason why you never have enough, the reason why you're busier and busier is because you actually haven't found that true flourishing comes through Christ. That, that the Bible describes the best way to flourish as a human being for your personal flourishing is to be content in Christ. But here's the best part. I am content in Christ, but I'm discontent for the world. I look around and I see how much better the world could be if Jesus was in it. I look around and while I'm flourishing, instead of having to focus on meeting my own needs, I begin to realize my neighbor is not flourishing. I begin to turn my attention to helping them understand flourish. I now seek to serve them. Why? Because I'm already content and in my contentment, I don't need more but I can see the world around us. I look around Clear Lake. I see so many people who are so desperate to find purpose and meaning. And I want you to hear this. It is possible, but it's only found in Jesus. Jesus then gives us purpose in our job. Jesus then gives us purpose in our finances. Jesus then gives us purpose in the things that we do. Jesus is not just a simple answer. Because here's the thing, the world defines flourishing this way. This is how humanity defines flourishing. Building personal success. In the Tower of Babel, it was building a city and a tower. Achievement. We need to reach for the heavens. I got to reach for the stars, Jason. It sounds like a great song. Third is status. I need to make a name for myself. That's how the world establishes, establishes flourishing. But here's the deal. We just talked about this last week. It's never enough. And it's been going around for thousands of years. See, the devil wants you to settle for a half truth. The only thing that you should be doing to thriving and growing and flourishing. And here's the counterintuitive way of Jesus. See, the way of Jesus is an upside down kingdom. Jesus tells us that if you're languishing, if you're not flourishing, if you want to do that, the best way to do it is not to focus on yourself, but on others. It's to serve others. It's to help others flourish. To stop being a weed. I think there is a spirit of the weed that is going around in our culture that is sucking the life out of our world today. It's a selfish attitude and mindset that says, no, it's about my personal flourishing. And I want to tell you, I need to repent of that just as much as you do. 
We need to repent of selfishness. We need to repent of that spirit that says that success is found through selfish ambition, making a name for ourselves and only thinking about our needs. But this is how the devil gets you. He uses airplane logic. Let me explain what airplane logic is. And we've all been there if you've been on an airplane. What are you supposed to do when the oxygen mask comes down? Put it on yourself first, right? That's when the plane's not flying well. When life is going well, you don't need to do that. But here's the problem. We all act like the world is falling apart. And so, well, Jason, I got to put the oxygen. I got to take care of myself. We're fine. We are doing okay. Even in the, compare, compare Clear Lake to the rest of the world. Would you say we're doing pretty okay? We're sitting in the middle of a park in a nation that allows us to worship freely. Yes, gas is crazy expensive, but guess what? I'm still able to drive. We're upright. That's half the battle. I don't need to put the mask on myself. Right now, what I get to focus on is helping other people flourish. But I can only do that when I'm finding contentment in who I am and where I am right now. Would you stand with me? And I want to close with this. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. What if? What if in our attempt to find purpose, to thrive, what if the way that you thrive, that I thrive, the way that we flourish is no longer focusing on my own flourishment, but thinking about others. What if I'm thinking about how I can help my neighbor thrive? What if we as a church, what if the way that we found that we could thrive as a community of Jesus-loving, gospel-serving, Holy Spirit-filled believers on mission, what if the way we did this was to have the mindset of Christ? putting others before ourselves, that instead of trying to build a tower of Babel, a tower of Zion, a tower of Jason, a tower of Clear Lake, what if we wanted to point people to life that is found in Jesus and it was done when we serve and love people the way Jesus did? It means we do this through recognizing our wholeness, our purpose, our joy, and true thriving is ultimately found in the work of the Holy Spirit and by the powerful name of Jesus. Amen? Can I get a clap for that? That is where thriving and flourishing is found. It's found in Jesus. It is found when we help others bloom into who God wanted them to be. When I help somebody else discover their purpose, their God-given gifts, when I help them to, to grow in their faith. It's like a plant. Plants grow because of the sun, food, and the water. Weeds are never content. They need, to, they need to hog all of the attention, all of the nutrients, all of the sun, all of the food, all of the water. But here's the thing. Jesus is not just the son of God. He is the son that allows us to grow. Jesus is the source of living water. He is the bread of life. Jesus is where we flourish. And the more that I am a part of what Jesus is doing, the more I flourish. But I need to help other people get to Jesus. Amen? We need to see a world flourish. We need to stop worrying about our own name and worry about the name of Christ being made famous in the world around us. God created us in the image to point 
other people, the rest of creation and culture to the God who is life and brings life. We need to stop worrying about our own image, our own flourishing, and start helping the world flourish. Of all of the devil's strategies, this is the one I think so many of us can fall prey to. Is like, Jason, I feel content, but it's not contentment in Christ. It's settling for less. It's settling for the busyness. It's settling for the lies of the world that tell us that we need more. I must be more. I must build more. I must save more. That is not the way. When Jesus told us to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, this was a divine reminder of our mission to help the world flourish, to stop languishing. God still wants us to help the world to to flourish, not to focus on ourselves, but on Christ. When this happens, when Jesus becomes our center, we can't help but flourish in front of the world and pointing people to something bigger. When we help the world flourish, we flourish. We thrive. We bring flourishing into the world through tangible things, not supernatural. You don't need supernatural gifts. You don't need to be super talented. You don't need an education. Here's how God tells us that we help the world flourish. You guys ready for this? Loving others as Christ did, Romans 13, 8. When you love others in the way of Christ, you help them flourish. When we seek the good of others, we help them flourish, 1 Corinthians 10, 24. When we seek the relief and equality and hardship, you want to know why I care about racism? Because God cares about helping all human beings flourish, amen? That's why I care about equality. I want men, women, black, white, Asian, whatever it might be. God wants the world to flourish. And that flourishing is only found when I stop focusing on me and I help others thrive and who God has called them. It's found when we help build each other up, when we value others. Yes, when we teach the gospel, not just with our words, but with our lives. You don't need spiritual gifts or supernatural talents. You just need a smile like that woman at Menard's. I don't know if you caught it, but when you, a gentle smile at the right moment can help a person flourish in the world, can't it? It's those simple, practical ways. We don't have to have all the answers. We just have to point them to the one who is the answer. And his name, say it with me, his name is? That's right. God wants flourishing for you. And just like that woman said, oh, honey, come here. I want to give you a hug. Our world needs a hug right now. (laughs) Our world needs to know that there is more, and that more is found in Jesus.